You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Thank you for joining us today. He is risen just as he said. So I'm so glad that you're here with us, North Canton Chapel. Um, It's a wonderful Easter morning. Don't you love it when you know how the story ends? That's incredible. I don't care if it's your favorite book, a familiar movie, or like your family's favorite bedtime story. Isn't it good to know that Cinderella's slipper always fits? But there's something strange about those familiar stories. I've been thinking about that in light of Easter this week. Even though we know the ending, there's still moments when all hope of restoration is lost. The odds seem too great, and the idea of a happy ending seems to sink beneath the waves of the moment. You know the ending, but you live with the tension. I'm willing to bet that This is probably the quietest Easter morning that you've ever celebrated. There's no family photo booth in the lobby. There's no big Easter dresses or pastel bow ties, if that's your thing. Um, There's no big Easter hymn. There's no big choir. There's no plastic grass crunching beneath our fingers as we search for those little eggs. By the way, Cadbury eggs should be considered their own food group. Just my opinion on that one. Yes, Jesus is risen. We just said it. It's a fact. It happened. Death does not have the last word. Hope lives. Jesus is king. But you're hurting this morning, just to guess, in some way. Maybe you woke up this morning and you are completely alone again. Maybe you're feeling like holding back despair is like a dam and the water just keeps backing up. The lake is filling in and every day despair gets harder and harder to hold back and your heels are starting to slide. You know the ending, but you live with the tension. So what do you do with that? It can be a hard question to ask and probably the scariest way to ask it, I'll just jump right in, is if Jesus is supposed to be king... Why doesn't he act like it? Hold on to that question for just a few minutes. So last week we finished up our teaching series called Solas, and we concluded by saying that God's people always win when we relearn how to trust our shepherd. And just to get a little closer this morning, in a COVID-19 world here on Easter morning, I believe that God's sovereignty is the home, the theological mooring, the resting place to which we should come. And so this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible. Uh, You can flip there on your phone or you can follow along on the screen uh, to Matthew chapter 27. This week kind of starts a a new sermon series for us. We're going to really kick into gear next week. Five weeks right from the pages in the New Testament that give us an up-close and personal look at the early church. And it starts with a few stunned soldiers, two baffled women, a handful of surprised young men, and of course, an empty tomb. Because when the plastic grass isn't there, and the choir is silent, and the hype is nowhere to be found, Easter is about one question. What will you do with King Jesus? 
So Matthew chapter 27. We're jumping into the last two pages of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is one of four gospel writers. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of these guys sought to write an account of Jesus's life, but they weren't like biographies or timelines just stating the facts. Each of these gospels focus on a different attribute of Jesus. And so before we get in, I want to show you what I mean. First off, Matthew, the first gospel, he wrote to a Jewish audience, and so he went out of his way to showcase Jesus as a king who is worthy of worship, and that's going to come into play big time this morning, so hang on to that idea. Mark is the second gospel. Mark wrote to a Roman audience, and so his account of Jesus' life is really fast-paced. It moves really, really quick. It's action-oriented. Mark saw Jesus as a servant, which to Roman ears totally upset their view of what a god should be like. And then there's Luke, the third gospel. Luke is a doctor vocationally. And so his gospel is full of details. It's well-researched. It's meticulous. Um, interestingly, we also see Jesus spending a lot of time in Luke with outcasts. His love for the lonely shows up a lot in Luke. And then John, John writes to the philosophically inclined Greek audience. And so in his gospel, um, John shows Jesus as the answer to all of life's deep questions. So here's the thing, whether you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we shouldn't see these as conflicting views of Jesus, but complementary views. I want you to imagine them like four stage lights that are shining on an actor on stage. And each one of these lights kind of shows a different angle or shows a different aspect of the person on stage so that we in the audience can get a full, rich portrait of who this Jesus is. So back to Matthew. We said that he's writing for a Jewish audience. And so Matthew wants us to see Jesus as king, but he isn't just an ordinary king because all throughout his gospel, Matthew kind of subversively gets us thinking, if Jesus is supposed to be king, he sure doesn't act like one. And this subtle insinuation is nowhere more present than in the events leading up to Good Friday. He tells us how at Jesus' betrayal, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, something only rabbis and priests did. How during his trial before the high priest, Jesus is accused of being the Messiah, this really high claim. And how a Roman official pilot asks Jesus directly, are you king? And Jesus' response is, well, you've said so. And then Jesus is taken, he's beaten, he's whipped, and then he's led away to be crucified. If Jesus is supposed to be king, he certainly doesn't act like one. Moving through the streets on Good Friday, someone, a cruel joke, makes a crown of thorns and presses it onto Jesus' head. This crowd who only days ago were laying down palm branches, the sign of like hopeful honor of their king, are now laughing at him and spitting at him. As Jesus moves through the streets, they start to hit him on the head, each blow pressing these thorn brambles deeper into his scalp. And as the final part of this kingly irony, by the time Jesus reaches the place where he will hang nearly naked in front of the people he came to save, there's already a sign on his cross that says, King of the Jews, like this. This is your king. This casual, wincingly ironic twist on the story of a life of a man whose life was tragic at best, wasted at worst. And if you get to this point in Matthew's gospel and your heart isn't convulsing, you have lost the plot. If Jesus is supposed to be king, he sure doesn't act like one. So he dies and he's buried and then from feeding a crowd of 5,000 people, teaching hillsides of eager listeners and 12 devoted followers, three people, a sympathetic stranger, a young woman, and Jesus' own mom, those are the only people that show up for the burial. 
And since it's illegal to mourn for someone executed under Roman law, their broken but silent grief just hangs in the air that evening like a choking fog. There's no parade, there's no funeral train, no nothing. If Jesus was supposed to be a king, he didn't really act like one, did he? All that brings us to Matthew 27, verse 62. Let's read together. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. First, interesting, isn't it, how the Pharisees, those are the experts in the Old Testament law who disagreed with everything Jesus was about, and the chief priests who saw Jesus as a blasphemer because he said he was God. It's interesting how these guys so show such respect for their Roman governor. What do they call him? They call him Sir. But then they show such incredible disdain for Jesus. What do they call him? The imposter. This is like saluting your IRS agent and then spitting on your neighbor. Again, they're taking this idea of a king and just dragging him through the mud. This word imposter was really common in the first century. It was a derisive term that meant huckster. You think like an old snake oil salesman. These people who would come into a town, exploit the people for all their money, take them for what they're worth, and then move on. And according to the narrative of the chief priests and the Pharisees, this is exactly how they saw Jesus. You can imagine them just kind of leaning back going, oh, look how cute he is. Giving the lower classes hope. Water to wine. Well, that's a, that's a nice trick. Very, very quaint, Jesus. Interesting idea that, that hookers and con men and lepers can get to know God. Well, okay, Jesus. But then when his teaching turned up the heat... When Jesus gets uncomfortably close to offending their authority, when he started to gain a following, when he, he moved from being an interesting teacher to a dangerous subversive, their eyes narrowed, their hearts hardened, and their hands started winching. Here's the quick aside. No one objects to the idea of a quaint Jesus. Did you ever notice that? Even today, nobody objects to Jesus being quaint, like a picture on your shelf, but it's when you start talking about him being Lord of your life that people start to talk about you in strange ways. We all like Jesus until he starts messing with our life, until he starts offending my authority and my autonomy as someone who would rather be sovereign over my life. But let's remember, Jesus gives us Easter. Easter is about one thing. What will you do with King Jesus? So another thing I want to see before we move on, don't you love the irony in verse 65? Because these guys are thinking like, okay, his disciples are going to steal the body, bet on it. And if there's one thing we can't have, we're going to have a bigger problem on our hands because the rumor of a risen imposter, at least until we can find the body, is worse than a dead one. And so Pilate goes, you have guards, use them. Now these were temple guards. They're kind of like rent-a-cops. They have a ton of swagger, but zero actually ability and authority. So here are his words. He says, go and make it as secure as you can. And you have to know that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Knowing the ending, writing those words, he had to have a smile come to his face. Like, how secure can you make it? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Now, here's the thing. Matthew's gospel should have ended at verse 66. 
Because it's what his original readers, if they're just learning about Jesus for the first time, would have expected. Because when people die like Jesus died, that's the end of the story, right? Game over. Close the book. Go home. If Jesus is supposed to be a king, he never acted like one. But aren't you glad that you know the ending? Let's keep going because there's a second scene that we need to see here. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, second earthquake in just the span of a few days. I'd pay attention to that. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This image of an earthquake, this shows up all the time in scripture. And it usually means, shut up, God is about to speak. You see it the first time in Exodus chapter 19 on Mount Sinai when God is about to give his people the law. There's an earthquake in the mountain. And then in 1 Kings 19 when God meets with Elijah, there's this whirlwind and an earthquake and a storm. David, in the heat of battle in Psalm 18, he describes it. He says, the earth rocked and reeled and the mountains trembled. And so when you're reading in scripture and you come across the idea of an earthquake, that's a little red flag that God is about to say something really important. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention to what God is going to say. He's clearing the stage, vying for your attention. So what happens? Verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. First thing the angel says. Did you catch it? He says, don't be afraid. Now you've got to know Matthew is just playing with his readers here. What other landmark event in the life of King Jesus starts with an angel saying, don't be afraid, right? An open field on a clear Bethlehem night to a crowd of nameless shepherds. And so bookending the life of Jesus is this call from an angel to stunned people saying, don't fear. Now we're going to come back to that in a second because then the story keeps going. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now this is the Easter scene, and each gospel writer takes his unique take on it. And Matthew's is simple. The women actually say nothing. Why? They just start worshipping. Now, I don't want to spoil anyone's sentimentality, but if you have ever imagined what it's going to be like when you meet Jesus, this, this is what you're going to do. You won't hug him. You won't sit on his lap. You will fall at his feet and worship. He is the eternally coexistent second person of the Trinity. And so his first words to them, don't be afraid. And all that tension comes spilling out of Mary Magdalene and Mary, his own mother. They can't believe their eyes. He's risen just like he said he would. They can't wait to get back and tell these other 11 half cowards who are laying low and trying to avoid the authorities. It's interesting to me that fear plays so prominently in this scene. I mean, this is the Easter morning and fear shows up four times in six verses. 
Did you catch it? Like, it's right there. The women run to the tomb, and the angel says, don't fear. They're afraid, and the angel says, don't fear. And then seeing the tomb, they're still afraid. Now, that's amazing to me. we got to sit on that for a second. Put that in your fear grid. It's possible to have hard proof of the risen Christ and still be afraid. I think we need to get that in our head. They actually saw an empty tomb, all the confidence in the world, and they were still afraid. Matthew tells us that they left with fear and great joy. Very interesting combo, yes? And then Jesus himself tells them, don't be afraid, four times in six verses. Now, I draw a lot of comfort from that, and here's why. Even when God is doing something amazing, fear is often the first emotion to show up. And here's something God's teaching me these days. If you're feeling afraid, you shouldn't shame yourself out of it. You should worship Jesus in it. If you're feeling afraid, you shouldn't shame yourself out of it. You should worship Jesus in it. Shame is a terrible pathway to get out of fear. It never works. I'd rather take the pathway that these women do. It's just Jesus. Let's fall at his feet and worship. Now, I've got one more scene to go, but... I want to sit in this space for a minute because I think it's very important, especially if you're feeling down about Easter 2020. Easter, at least the first one, wasn't flowers and fanfare. It was two women with nothing left to lose in their world, telling a group of dejected and defective men, seven fishermen, a tax collector, a political revolutionary, and a few Jewish nobodies, that the news they could barely bring themselves to believe is actually true. Easter, at least the first one, wasn't confetti and a big gathered family dinner, but the tense huddled few in a room after two sleepless nights spent completely racked by fear. These guys hadn't slept. Their world had been completely turned upside down. They were leaderless, lost, and alone. Easter, at least the first one, was not traditional. It was not familiar. There wasn't a family photo booth because there wasn't time for one. This group of strung-together disciples, half delirious in joyful wonder, ran as fast as their legs could carry them to see their master, their risen Savior, their Lord, and their friend. Easter is a simple message with one crystal clear question. What will you do with King Jesus? It isn't quaint or cute or nostalgic. It isn't like hope over doubt. It isn't faith over fear. It isn't love over hate. Those sound really good, but they're meaningless, and they make for really charming Facebook quotes, but they miss the point because they miss the person. Easter is about one thing and one thing only, King Jesus conquering death in all its various forms. He started with sin. And he dealt with that on the cross, price paid. And then he moved on to death itself. And he dealt with that in his resurrection, victory over. And now, do you know where he's at this morning? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, kingship complete. Sin doesn't scare him because he is Savior. Death doesn't bother him because he's God. And fear doesn't intimidate him because he is King. Easter is about one question. What will you do with this King Jesus? Men and women, kids who are watching today, Resist the temptation to make Easter 
cute. Tell your kids that Easter is about Jesus and Jesus alone and lead them to worship him. He is mighty. He is strong. He is eager to save the lost and lost every one of us were. He is king. He is Lord. And he is seeking out the hopeless. And that's me and that's you. You only get Easter if you have Good Friday. And you only have Good Friday if you have a cross. And you only have a cross if you have a God who is desperately, unquenchably in love with lost people. And that's us. So one more scene, and this last scene is the spark that lights the fuse. About a week goes by between what we just read and where we're going to pick things up in verse 16. Matthew's last scene actually paves the way for where we're going to go as a church in these next couple of weeks. Next week, we're starting a four-week teaching series called Like Fire, an up-close and personal look into the life and activity of the early church. And what Jesus says next ignites the whole thing. So let's look together in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Like, don't you love it? Like, still having their mouths hanging open, going, really? Still grappling with unbelief? That's a good lesson for all of us, though. Just like you can see an empty tomb and still be afraid, you can literally see the risen Christ and wrestle with tension. And he pulls them in close because it's what Jesus does. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them. Now he probably took a step or two forward, getting really close to them so he can see their faces and they could see his eyes. And he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And there's the voice of our King. You hear him? As he leans into his closest friends, just now catching their breath, fighting back tears, they can't believe it. Jesus does the one thing none of them expected. He pushes them out of the nest and says, go, do it. Scholars and pastors and theologians call these words or this passage in Matthew the Great Commission. This is Jesus commissioning his disciples to extend God's mission beyond his own earthly ministry. This isn't church marketing. This is making disciples. And there's so much we could squeeze out of these couple of verses. But here's what I want us to see on Easter Sunday as we consider King Jesus. Three quick things. First, Jesus' claim for all authority. Where he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the culmination of the theme of kingship that Matthew has built his entire gospel around. Way back at the beginning. The Magi seek out Jesus as a king. Herod tried to kill him in chapter 2 with national infanticide. During his temptation, the enemy promised Jesus earthly kingship and he refused. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with the hope that people would recognize him as king and they got it totally wrong. And then his kingship was the weapon for mockery and humiliation. But this declaration of authority is the climactic vindication born out of his deepest humiliation on the cross. Jesus has authority. Second thing, though, a mission. A mission. Make disciples. That's the command here. Well, what does that look like? Two participles, baptizing and teaching. As you're going, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. Baptizing how? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, teaching them what? 
teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the essence of discipleship, isn't it? That we are all pupils at the feet of the master. So you've got authority, you've got mission, and then finally, a promise. And I love that one, don't you? He says, I am with you always. And you have to catch the tender reference to the fact that Jesus will always be with us as he was with his disciples. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So, did you catch it? Authority, mission, and promise. Authority, mission, promise. Now, it's important to see what's really going on here. This threefold commission, authority, mission, and promise, this isn't anything new. This is actually really ancient. And so by speaking the way that he does, Jesus inspires the imagination of these 11 young men and blows their mind. So follow me for a second. Genesis chapter 12. This is God and Abraham. What's God say to Abraham? He says, I'm God. Go to a land that I will show you. I will make your name great. Authority, promise, mission. Or authority, mission, promise. Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. I'll be with you. Authority, mission, promise. Before the people get into the promised land, Joshua chapter 1, he says to Joshua, I've given it to you. Go get it. I'm with you, Joshua. Authority, mission, promise. David, before he becomes king, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I pulled you from the pasture. I'll make your name great. I'm with you. Authority, mission, promise. This is how God communicates when he's about to unleash his people into his world. When God speaks in this pattern, something big is about to go down. Do you follow me? So here's the question. Go back to this Judean hillside and these 11 young men. Do you think they knew the stories about Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David? You bet they did. Go to Matthew's readers who are hearing this gospel for the first time. Do you think they knew their stories as a Jewish audience looking for a king, steeped in their hopes for this messianic king, Messiah? These guys, Abraham, Moses, and Joshua, and David, and others, they were like legends in their minds. These are like their faith heroes. These stories sustained this entire culture. And so when Jesus says what he says, how he says it, you know their jaws just had to drop. Why? Because reaching way back to the earliest pages of their collective memory and gathering up their faith heroes and now bringing his disciples into that same fold, Jesus is saying this plan called the kingdom of God that is unfolding for you is the same plan that God always had and you are a part of it. Now, if that wasn't enough, you really want to blow your theological mind. That last one I read, God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's more to it. Let me read it to you. God moves from talking to David about someone, to, or talking to David about his promise, to talking to David about someone who will come later. Almost a thousand years before Jesus, God gives David a promise, David a promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment on an Easter morning. Listen to what God says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, get that. So someone from David's family line will be king. And that king will have a kingdom 
and God will be like a father to him. Do you get that? But it keeps going. He says, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever. So let's keep going. This king will be wounded by the stripes of men, but God will not give up on him and his kingdom will never end. Guys, that was written a thousand years before Jesus. What's the point? Jesus' words on this mountainside, these aren't a pep talk. They are centuries of prophecy unrolling like a scroll, and they're all about him. And guys, this is our legacy, us as a church. We are in this line, North Canton Chapel 2020, under Jesus' authority, engaged in Jesus' mission, assured of his promise. And so Easter, again, is about one question. What do you do with King Jesus? So, as we kind of prepare to wrap up, let's land this plane. What will you do with King Jesus? Let me run through a few options for you. And I know some of you are watching, you've been watching every week here at North Canton Chapel and you're missing our church family. Some of you, maybe this just showed up on your Facebook feed this morning and you're like, okay, it's Easter, I guess I'll watch. And so, I want to speak to you this morning. If you're not sure where you sit with King Jesus, let me give you a couple options. First, You can oppose him. You could oppose him. Opposing Jesus in our culture today doesn't necessarily look like carrying signs or or protesting something. I mean, it it can look like that, but opposing Jesus is usually more right down in here. It's It's in my heart, this place that nobody else sees but me. And you can do that. But your own half-joy-filled life will become the greatest evidence that opposing Jesus is not just a waste of time, it's also profoundly unsatisfying. So you could oppose him. Or two, you could peripheralize him. Peripheralize him. This is saying, you know, this whole Jesus deal is not not really for me. Like, I kind of cruise through life on my own. I've got this. This is the man who's having an affair that he doesn't want to give up because he can't imagine what it would mean to surrender his life to an authority that he doesn't recognize. This is the the person who has an addiction that she will not confront because she's scared of what it might mean to be to be like open and honest. But most often, this is the person who maybe you're watching this morning, and you would rather put off Jesus until later. You go, you know what? He's very good for Sunday morning and it's quaint, but you know, Monday through Saturday, those are mine. And here's my word for you. If you are tempted to peripheralize Jesus, Jesus is for you. He is on your side. He is chasing you and he is relentless. Don't peripheralize him. So you could oppose him. You could peripheralize him. You could relativize him. This looks like picking the parts of Jesus that you like and rejecting the ones that you don't. And eventually, let me know, I'll let you know where this one leads. This collapses into something like God made you in his image and now you're just returning the favor. And he probably just comes off as a more slightly more compelling version of me when that happens. And this one runs out real quick. Like it doesn't take me long to get really tired of Brandon Marshall. And I am Brandon Marshall and it bothers me. Jesus refuses to be remade into my image. He demands that he should be taken on his own terms. He is king, and that is the best thing for me, is to bow the knee to the king. So you could oppose him, you could peripheralize him, you could relativize him, or most common, I think, is this one. You could tolerate him. 
I think this one's the most common. This looks like making just enough room in your life to where Jesus becomes this like artfully maintained image of a Christian. Like your lawn of life is so well manicured. Everybody looks at you and go, they're probably a good person. But you know what you lack if you tolerate Jesus? You lack the courage and the candor to let him into the face the dark parts that are really deep inside of you. You tolerate Jesus because he hasn't become too intrusive yet. And then when he does, you kind of push him off for a while. And here's my word for you if this sounds like something you do. Jesus is not content with only having part of your life. Take it from me. He will afflict you with all kinds of discontentment until he gets a hold of all of you. And so what's the last option? You can worship him. You can worship him as he is, for who he is. Because here's the rub with all those first four, and there's probably more out there, but those are the four that came to me. Do you know who the only one who loses is if we do any of those first four? You. You're the only one who loses in those scenarios. It's not like you're robbing Jesus of glory because you won't bow the knee. He's king. He's going to get his glory one way or another. You just live a life that's half-lived. And maybe you're listening and you have seasons like that and you look back. I know I do. There was 11 years where I lived a life that was half-lived. My joy was like non-existent because Jesus was not on the throne of my life. I was. And that was the greatest tragedy because I wasn't worshiping Jesus with my life. I was worshiping Jesus for a couple hours on Sunday and that was about it. And you know this. Worship is so much more than music. It's so much more than singing. It's saying, here, Jesus, you are worthy of my life. Take it and use it any way you want. So let's go all the way back to the beginning question, maybe where we started. If Jesus is supposed to be king, but he's not acting like it, maybe the problem isn't Jesus. Maybe the problem is my expectations. Maybe the problem is with me. Easter is about one question. What will you do with King Jesus? So I am so glad that you've chosen to worship with us on Easter morning. I know it's Easter morning unlike any other Easter you've probably experienced in your life. Jesus is risen just like he said. He is king and he loves you. But let me leave you with this question. Where do you stand with Jesus? It is the most important question that you could ask yourself this morning. Nothing else matters if you haven't squared with that question. Where do you stand with Jesus? I know... By this point, we're all going, okay, what's next on Netflix? Did you take the dogs out? Maybe I need to refresh my coffee. What's for lunch? But don't hurry past that question. Where do you stand with Jesus? Every one of us are sinners. God's word makes that clear. Jesus taught us that. We are sinners and we cannot fix our sin problem on our own. We need a savior. And Jesus stepped in and said, I will take it. I will take all of the burden. I will take all of the pain. I will take all of the punishment on my back. I want you to trust me for that. So have you said that? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner? And have you acknowledged that he is an all-sufficient savior? And have you given your life over to him and said, here, you take it? If you haven't, maybe today's the day. And so I want to pray with us. Before we continue in worship, please stay on here and let's worship together. Let me pray. Father, again, we turn our hearts to you on Easter morning. How good are you that you sent us your son? And we didn't deserve it. We couldn't pay you back for everything that you've given us. 
And so what do we have to say other than thank you, thank you, thank you. You are worthy. You've conquered sin and you've conquered death and you've given us hope. Hope that we can have heaven guaranteed and hell canceled from this day on. So Father, I do pray that if there's somebody that's on the fence about you right now, God, that you would work in their heart and you would wake them up to the reality that they could be yours forever. Father, we say thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.